If you or someone you know is struggling with alcoholism or addiction, do not hesitate to reach out for help. You can find numerous free resources on our website, thebeginagainpodcast.com, and there are tons of resources and support networks available online, in person, or just a phone call away. You don't have to face this challenge alone. Welcome to the Begin Again Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Menkes. On the Begin Again Podcast, we delve into the inspiring journeys of individuals who have overcome alcoholism and addiction and emerged as true trailblazers in entrepreneurship, business, sports, and beyond. Through authentic, uplifting, and profound conversations with our guests, we aim to shatter the stigma surrounding addiction and demonstrate that recovery can be a catalyst for remarkable success, strength, and resilience. We firmly believe that by listening to these accounts, you will be empowered to unlock your own potential, instigate positive change in your life, and contribute to the creation of a better world. So, get ready to be inspired and embark on your own personal journey of growth with the Begin Again podcast. Welcome back to the Begin Again podcast. I'm your host, Gary Menkes. And today we have an amazing story, a true life comeback story. Anthony Zorzetto, who is the founder and CEO of the Possible Principal Academy. And amazingly, Anthony is also a former homeless drug addict who turned entrepreneur. Now he's a sober coach and a peak performance coach. And full disclosure, just to get a glimpse on how Anthony operates, I reached out to him two days ago. He answered me within minutes, and a few minutes later, he was booked. And I'm super grateful to have you here today, Anthony. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, no problem at all. I appreciate it. Any opportunity I can to talk about this stuff, I'll take it on. Amen, man. Amen to that. So let's jump right into it. So uh, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was it like growing up for you? Sure, sure. So right now, currently, I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I grew up in a small town just outside of Edmonton. It's called Beaumont. It'd be uh, it's like 10 minutes outside the, the city here. Small town living, knew everybody, knew all the girls, knew all the guys. Everybody played, you either played football or you played hockey, but it was mostly hockey. There was a pretty much, if you didn't make the hockey team, you were playing football. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of the, of the state. So uh, yeah, just, just simple living. My, my uh, it was, it's a French town actually. Hmm. And uh, uh, I went to a French immersion. So it was completely French until I was in about grade four. And then uh, I started to need some help with homework. And my parents are Italian. So they're like, I don't know. I can't help you with your homework because it's French. So they thought I could just get away with learning how to do French and uh, never came up. So never worked. So <laughs> yeah, we, uh, yeah, they, uh, yeah, it's a good, good French town. Really liked it. Uh, my parents divorced when I was in grade five, the summer of grade five, sorry, summer of grade, yeah, grade five going into grade, uh, grade six. Mm-hmm. So, uh, from there moved to the, to the big city here in Edmonton, uh, with my mom. So that's where I grew up, small town. And it's funny saying big city when you're from New York. That's <laughs> uh, all relative though. You know, hey, big yeah. city, all relative to us, you know, there's a million people here. <laughs> Big yeah, city. Well, yeah, that, hey, that is a big, like I said, it is, it's all relative. You know, there's, I don't know, eight point something they say in New York City. Uh, and sometimes it feels like there's double that. But, um, and I know you yeah. get down here. So when you get down here, we're going to have to meet up for sure. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be awesome. So sixth grade, 
you have that little, well, maybe a big event, right? Your parents split up and you get moved. That's a tough age to to move. I'm guessing that's, you know, I I had, I still have my same best buddies uh, that I was in sixth grade with. I can imagine what it'd been like to, you know, to have to been pried away from my, from my group of group of boys, you know, at sixth grade, it's a tough age. Yeah, man, you're exactly right. So what happened is I like telling this story because it speaks to when you're talking about divorce, most people like adults will compare it to other adult divorces, but you got to really think about what the kids are seeing. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been starting to write a book. It's called your kids divorce. I've shelved it for a little bit because I got to be in a particular mood to, uh, to write got, I'm pretty busy as well. So I want to kind of uh, set some some uh, intentional time aside, but my mom turned, she would have been 34. She's turning 34. It was her birthday. I was having a sleepover at my buddy's house. I said goodbye to my mom. I said goodbye to my dad. They were having a big party there. And that was the last time I ever saw that house. I said, you know, I'll see you, pick you guys, you guys will pick me up in the morning or whatever. And uh, I never saw that house ever again. And my mom picked me up from my friend's house. She had all her clothes in the back of the car. And she said, we're going to, uh, we're going to your grandparents' house. I was like, okay, you know, what's, what's that all about? Like seeing all the, looking around, seeing all the clothes, <laughs> like how long are we going there for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we went downstairs. I saw the look on my grandpa's face. Like it didn't look, he didn't look like himself. And then my mom said, yeah, me and your father are getting, getting divorced. And, uh, yeah, it was a big, uh, it was a big hit, hit on me. I, I, I definitely downplayed it when I was a kid, but looking back now, especially having a son of my own, it's, I realized how big of a deal that was to, Mm. to have this, this, you know, as kids, you're constant, you're solid, your, your rock is your family. Mm. That's the one thing you can lean on no matter what. And, uh, I, I, it was proven to be untrue that day and it just kind of shattered. And I, I remember not believing uh, anything anybody said at all. I thought it was all a lie. Like even simple things like when my mom would go to the grocery store, I'd, I'd be wondering if she'd come back. She would never do that. But in my head, I'm like, are you actually going to the grocery store? Or like, are you going to come back? Or do I live with my grandparents now? Like mm-hmm. what's going on? It was a, a very, uh, a very pivotal time in my life. And, and to your point too, lo- losing those buddies, it was not only did my parents divorce and we left the house, but we you know, this is pre Facebook and cell phone and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have a much of a connection with them. I don't remember if you, if you knew Nexopia, but that wasn't even out yet. I had no contact with them. I had to memorize my buddy's numbers and stuff, you know, the hope they were home. But yeah, I just, I didn't, uh, for, for years and years, I never, I never saw them ever again. It was just like a whole new life bang, just like that. That's tough. You bring a few things up. Uh, that I can resonate with, you know, you mentioned something about kids seeing stuff when they're young and, you know, I saw stuff too. I had a very active father, uh, active in his own addictions. And there was a lot of rough and tumble people coming in and out of the house, but I saw things that, you know, most eight, nine, 10 year old boys aren't supposed to be seeing. And you also yeah. bring up, uh, you know, trust, you know, I can totally relate because, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to time my state myself, but um, I just turned 49. And when I was a kid, I was saying 10, 11, 12 years old, there was this huge thing, you know, say, you know, war on drugs, say no to drugs. And we were learning about it in school, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I had it in my head, like, you know, man, I hope, I wonder if everyone knows about, you know, my dad and I came home and I, I kind of confronted him. Right. And he, 
you know, he lied through his teeth. And I love my dad. Let me just say that too. I mean, we have a great relationship today, but as good as it can be. But, you know, at that point I asked him, you know, and I kind of confronted him and he lied through his teeth about it. And like right away, right at that moment, like I didn't believe anything either. Like I started not trusting things. And, you know, I went from kind of like, I was always afraid of him. I, I was nervous. He wasn't going to make it home. He was just, like I said, he was just, it was random people. And it was, he was always in stuff. And I, and I used to stare out, look out my front window and, and being really just scared that he wasn't going to make it home. But that turned from that moment when, you know, I kind of lost trust and I started growing. I talk about it a lot. I started growing this chip on my shoulder. I talk about it a lot about my, this chip on my shoulder. You know, it, it turned me and it defined me in many ways. And I, I venture to say at some point it, it served me well, maybe in the business field, maybe on the, on the sports field. You know, again, for a young boy, stuff like what you're going through. And I can't imagine not even going to your own, you know, you're, you're not seeing your home again. That's gotta be devastating. So I'm going to, you know, as we're relating, maybe that started putting a little building some kind of chip on Anthony's shoulder at that age. Absolutely. Matt, you, you nailed it. It's one of my favorite sayings is uh, a fisherman always sees another fisherman from afar. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. That. Yeah, I lo- I love I love that saying, and it can be applied to so many things. And and right there, it's just another another thing. Like you totally nailed it. I had a chip on my shoulder. Still, at times, I'll you know I I don't like looking to the past that yeah. much, but I do like drawing from there where I can. Right. If I if I need a little bit of momentum or a little bit of like you know I, it's I'm I'm on hour sixteen of my working day. I got to get this project done, or I got to get something done. I can just hear somebody's voice like you'll never make it or you'll never do it or and it's just like let's fucking go. <laughs> so right? yeah, you turn it around. You t- I'm this I'm the same way. Imposter syndrome for me is a is a real thing, and I can go down the rabbit hole quick. And you bring up a good point too. You know, I'm not afraid to look at the past. I just if I'm dwelling in it and I'm sitting in the past, that's the problem. But if I look back to it and say, all right, that's where I was. Let's make that a positive and turn things around. That's an okay place to be for me, at least. And I love that yeah. saying, by the way. It's got it kind of speaks to it speaks to a lot of things, but it speaks to the community that we're in, the sober community. Like, hey man, we're you know we got the same kind of we got similar uh, war scars. You know, we're in the same same boat for sure. So I love how you. Yeah. Say, I'm gonna have to, I have to say that one myself. Oh yeah, adopt it. The more the merrier. It's so yeah, applicable. Man. So yeah, use it. So, all right. So fast forward, got a, you and I have a healthy chip on our shoulder. We are as our young kids, but so you're in a new city, you're in a new place. You don't trust, you have some trust issues, if you will, obviously, you know, very warranted fast forward. Yeah. Where, where, uh, where do you go from here? Well, yeah, I bet, went to the big city and then, uh, went to junior high, finished off junior high in high school up to grade 11, uh, in, in Edmonton. And, and it was just, you know, I had some self-identity issues. Uh, I would lie a lot about about my life, just try to make it better. So it wasn't so sad, you know. Mm. Uh, I was pretty, I was very violent. Um, I wasn't a wep- like a weapons type guy, but I had a fist fighting quite a bit. I was a boxer. Mm. My mom identified that pretty quickly and put me in boxing fast. And mm. uh, I got a lot of it out there, but I was still, you know, puberty ages you're full of piss and vinegar you know like you got somebody's talking to your girlfriend or someone you know says Mm -hmm. they can kick your ass you got to show them that they can't and all that kind of stuff so inside the ring was uh was really healthy for me 
like very mm-hmm. healthy for me. Who knows where I'd be without it? But I, there were still some fights that spilled over. So I kind of got that that fighter's reputation. Like Anthony was at a house party. There's probably going to be a fight. It was, you know, things like that. Just being a young, dumb idiot. <laughs> oh, I, so, I get it. I relate too. You can look at, you know, my rap sheet. I got uh, too many assaults under my record uh, my record that I um that I care to, to share, but, you know, same thing, you know, early on, you know, getting my, you know, getting my, my ego up, getting my bravado up. And, you know, I always say this, you know, if you saw me in a bar, even at an early age or, or a party, like you said, high school party, but mo- mostly bars, I, I could have been the happiest guy in the place, but at the drop of the dime, I'd be the nastiest guy. And you'd probably knew it either way. And yeah, I, yeah. I guess bravado and the ego. And I think it came from a place for me of thinking I'm not good enough and, you know, had this like deflated ego inside and thinking this person thinks they're better than me and think they're tougher than me or smarter than me. And sometimes we'd act or I, I would act out and, uh, you know, it landed me in a lot of bad places. In fact, just to keep going, you know, I've shared this too before, but I was, you know, I was 16 years old the night before Thanksgiving and I'm out with my older cousins. I sneak into the bar and I'm the smallest guy in the bar by, by a lot. Fight spills out into the street with my cousins. And I wake up Thanksgiving morning with a first degree assault of a police officer, broke his nose. So that, that was my first foray into trouble and to, yeah, like you said, the violence part, the uh, certainly, you know, fighting for me. I have definitely had my, my share of scraps, but you, yeah. uh, you might've turned this into a positive because you're still, you're an active, accomplished in MMA, correct? Uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right. I'll actually, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll back up. I lost that for a while. Like I, I stopped boxing, I uh, stopped playing hockey because, it, you know, it comes to a point where you're, I'm like, okay, hey, I'm not Connor McDavid. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make the NHL. I'm not mm-hmm. big enough. I'm not, I'm not good enough. So uh, I got, I got to uh, midget double A, um, and then from there, you got to go to like the Western Hockey League, American Hockey League, OHL, something like that. And I'm like, it's not happening. So I, I stopped playing hockey and uh, I went to, um, from there, I went to, uh, I, I wanted to, to join the army, the Canadian army, mm-hmm. uh, infantry. So I actually, I enlisted and I went to basic training or you guys call it boot camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, both my rotator cuffs, I ripped them both like completely so i couldn't even lift my arms like this anymore mm. uh in this cargo net obstacle so since i was infantry they wanted to they they couldn't really justify the investment of keeping me around if i was a cook or something maybe they would you know put me through pat platoon give me some rehab and all that kind of stuff so one of the officers said you know just voluntary release vr it's called and uh you can re-enlist when your shoulders are better. Cause it's going to take you like nine to 10 months to rehab your shoulders. I was like, okay, sounds good. So I did that and went back to Edmonton. And in the meantime, I started my apprenticeship uh, as a carpenter. That's what my dad did. That's what my, my, my Nono and Nona, they, the, every generation actually all the way back, like to world war one, we're, we're carpenters. It's, it's crazy. We, we have, we have my great, great, great grandfather's hand tools. Still, we just keep passing them down. That's so cool. So cool. And, and being a tradesperson myself, I, I look at these tools and I'm like this, he made this first of all, like I go to Home Depot and I buy a planer. Like he, he goes to like a, a piece of uh, hickory 
and whittles it down and then gets a blacksmith to make the blade and he makes his own he made his own and it's just been passed down that's how he made his living so it's almost like like when i touch it i'm like i can feel that wow that's spirit yeah cool so you used you use these tools today that's that i mean talk about history touching history and and it's super obviously close to you it's your it's your your family and passed down that's amazing man yeah it's it's incredible my my son, me, so me and my dad, we, we built my son's crib. Uh, he, my son's five now, but we, we, we built his crib and we used some of those tools to build, to build it. Cause it's on display, like at my dad's house now, but we would use it a couple of times to plane just so it gets a little piece of history on it. And, uh, my sister, her crib too, we built, uh, we built her, her daughter's crib, same thing. So it's, uh, it's been really, really awesome. That's one of the coolest things I've heard, man. That is really unbelievable. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. So I got my apprenticeship, uh, got turned into a journeyman carpenter. I realized that the combat role for the Canadian infantry anyways, was, uh, was phasing out. So even if I went back to basic training and then, uh, war school, I wouldn't have gone to Afghanistan for any sort of, uh, military actions, combat action. And that's literally the only reason why I joined the army. I wanted to join the army the second the planes hit the towers, just like so many other people. I'm like, I'm doing it. And I was um, probably would have been like 14 years old or something. So that's amazing. Yeah. You're looking at someone that was half a mile north of the World Trade Center when it went, when that happened. So yeah, to see someone across the, you know, I know it, it affected the whole world, definitely affected the country, affected both of our countries for sure. But to, still to think of a 14 year old, you and Edmonton, you know, ready to go and, and go fight the good fight. That, that brings a smile to my face, man. So appreciate it. Yeah. That. Yeah. No, we're, there, it was so patriotic here too. There was uh Canadian, there was Canadian and American flags, just absolutely everywhere. Absolutely yeah. everywhere. And some of those planes got rerouted to St. John's, Newfoundland. So a lot of people, cause all the, everyone had to shut down, right. Yeah. No one could land planes. So a lot of people went from that we're supposed to go to uh what's your airport there jfk okay yeah it's one of them we have two in LaGuardia. yeah so all the planes that were going to go there some of them ended up going to newfoundland and some of the people in newfoundland just like took them in like come into my house and have lunch and stuff so wow yeah you know, was, those uh, are the other stories you don't you don't oh you don't hear about those i mean if you're on your way to jfk and you end up landing in newfoundland that's a little different different places yeah but what a beautiful story people were bringing bringing them in because wow that's unbelievable love it yeah very uh very patriotic uh at that time for sure so i continued with my apprenticeship so that whole you know boxing getting physical all all that stuff kind of went to the wayside i picked up more or less bodybuilding not competition but just just trying to build muscle and look good and and actually not even just trying to look good to be completely honest I, i tried to look like a bodybuilder Mm-hmm. As, as much as I could. Ronnie Coleman was a big hero of mine. Jay yeah. Cutler, you know, yeah, buddy, you know, <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, my dad used to power lift and he had, uh, he had photos of flex magazine. And he had Dorian Yates all over the place. So that was a big one for me as well. So those were your guys. Yeah, cut, those were the guys. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of just lost touch with the, with the combat stuff. And I almost only, uh, by three, four years ago, picked up Brazilian jiu-jitsu because I remembered how important that that kind of controlled violence was for me and yeah. getting out, you know, ego death. Cause you you kick the shit out of someone and then you get the shit kicked out of you. It's next right. round by somebody else. You know, it's so it's so humbling and 
uh, there's a great sense of community and family. And uh, of course, you know, I don't have to tell you, but for everybody listening as addicts, we need, we have a different baseline of endorphins, serotonin and dopamine, and we have to earn those. I call it earning the big three and we got to earn those every day. And, and the most effective and efficient way and, and kind of lovely way for me is uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I'm glad I found it. That's amazing. Yeah. So now we're starting to get to where you're doing now, but I want to hear, tell us about your homelessness and tell us what happened when you got addicted to drugs and what were they and what happened? Sure. So uh, at about 19 years old, I was, uh, I bought my first, uh, well, had the down payment for the first condo uh, mm-hmm. that I bought. I was 19, had my had my shit together. I was the first person to buy a place out of my family and my, as in my brothers and my sisters, um, all my friends, all that kind of stuff. I was, I was that guy that had everything put together. I was long on my way on the apprenticeship, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, at about 20, 21, 22 years old. And again, I was anti, like if you did cocaine, even if you smoked weed, I'm like, you're, you're a loser. I'm like, you're just, you're a fucking loser and unbelievable that I went the, I swung the other way. So how that happened was I made friends with with some buddies at work that, uh, I was very impressionable and they had the stuff that I wanted. Like they had that, like you said, the bravado, they had nice cars, they had all that kind of stuff. They had the girl, they had the house, they had, you know, everything. They were just, they're older than me. They were 10 years older than me. So they had, they were further along and I wanted all that stuff. And they also had people around them that were like very, uh, not proud. Yeah. Like proud of them. Like very, they looked up to them, you know, mm-hmm. it's like they had little minions everywhere. And when we would go to go to the bar and, and all that kind of stuff, I, I was, I couldn't figure out why I would get drunk and they would drink just as much as me, but I would pass out at like 10 30, 11 PM. And then I would wake up at like 4am to go take a leak or something. And they're still up. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> like i didn't know i was so ignorant to to yeah. cocaine being or being around us and finally one day we went to this uh it was called a full moon party akin to the full moon party in thailand and it was basically a rave and um we went these same friends met up with his version of their kind of hero their kind of person that has their stuff together and i'll never forget i'll call him jay because i don't know where he is now but Jay had a Dodge Viper. He had a, like a fur coat. He had a supermodel girlfriend. Everybody was like scared of him, but they were also really nice to him. Like, but they were like, don't fuck with that guy. They really mind their P's and Q's with him. And he just kind of waved us all. He's like, let's go back to my house after party at my house. And my buddy, he's like, this guy's like the, the, the real deal. This guy's the man, whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm looking forward to it. We get to this gated community. Unbelievable. I've never seen one house like this in my whole life. And he's got people working there and stuff. I'm like, what is it? Where am I? It was the coolest thing ever. All the really hot chicks were really into him and his friends and all this stuff. So anyways, we we go downstairs and he's got posters of like framed pictures of Scarface and the movie blow and all that kind of stuff. And then we're your work, you know, probably like four or five ounces of cocaine on a table. And it was just this big pile, this huge pile. And then he's just like community pile. Go ahead. I've never tried it in my life. I've never mm-hmm. seen it in real life, just besides movies. So I didn't want to 
not so much not offend him, but I didn't want to just not, I didn't want to not be cool. I didn't want to be a loser. So I was like, I'll try it out. Went up to it. I saw some people, <laughs> some people like touch it and put it on their gums. I'm like, oh, I don't fucking know what that means. So I'll do it. And my tongue went all numb and it's like, okay. And then I, I snorted some and, and honestly, man, the, the second it went up my nose, I'm like, I fucking love this. Whatever this is, I want more of it. And I ended up doing a truckload that night just with every, like I was keeping up with everybody. I'm pretty intuitive. Obviously not at that time. I was pretty drunk at that time, but I knew like the inner voice in my head was like, you're in trouble. Like you're, you're in big trouble. And what, what cocaine did for me and continued to do for me is, you know, I always wanted to have that big high profile CEO job. I wanted people to look up to me. I wanted to be not feared like a gangster, but like kind of just very much respected. Like you don't, you don't even swear around that guy, like that type of, mm. that type of thing. Yeah. And doing, doing cocaine gave me that permission. I was able to lie to myself so much that I felt like I was that guy when I was on it, you know, on top of the, the chemical addiction to it I and the habitual addiction to it. I had this, like all my goals and aspirations were met with this cocaine. So I just, I continued it. And from that day forward, I, I was doing it every single weekend for, you know, probably about, probably about a year, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, normalized. I always talk about how if you got 10 friends that you grew up with and you go, you all go to keep going to this same house party and there's cocaine, like, you know, five will do it. And then the other five will be like, this isn't for me. They'll leave the party. You'll never see them again. Out of those five four will do it more and more and more. And you hang out with those guys. And then out of those four, I'm not like one or two will be the guy that does it every day and ruins his whole life. And you're going to hang out with that guy. Right. Right. And it, and it now seems normal. You used to have to hide it in the bathroom and in the bedroom that was locked. And then now all of a sudden it's just on this table because everyone is used to it. It's normal. So now it's just, people just do cocaine. It's no big deal. It got to that point. And during that time, I met a girl, we got married. She never did cocaine ever, not even once but she was an alcoholic. I got my shit together for about two years where I was like, okay, she doesn't do it. So I'm not going to do it. Uh, I alienated myself from these other friends that were doing cocaine all the time. Uh, her and I just drank, like we would just drink and she would get just absolutely obliterated. I would be very annoyed all the time with how drunk she was. And, you know, I'd preach to her and be like, you know, what are you doing? This is ruining your life. You're ruining our marriage, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I started a construction company and I was doing residential and I got screwed over on three jobs in a row mm. as a, as a startup. So I was literally, I was literally tapped out. And back then I was too much of a pussy to go collect. <laughs> I was like, I would listen to these stories. Like, you know, one, one guy said that his grandma was really sick and he had to pay for, for all the treatment and stuff. And I'm like, we're in Canada. right it's it's literally free (laughs) (laughs) so i didn't even think of that i was just young and dumb and i was always nervous and oh it was just looking back now it was was brutal and i later found out that he took his wife uh to europe uh with the money that he owed me so he got a loan from his father and his father gave him the money for this renovation i did the renovation he never paid me and he took his so he got a renovation and he took his wife on the vacation so while I wanted all this, you know, notoriety as a CEO and a founder and, and, you know, really successful business person, I wanted to make my dad proud and my family. Cause not only with my family on both sides, carpenters, they both, 
they both turn into really large construction companies and developers like mm. massive. My, my dad's dad was a vice president of triple five. So they owned uh, like West Edmonton mall. I'm not, I'm sure. Have you ever heard of that? It used to be the biggest mall in the world and many properties in Las Vegas and just huge, huge. Right. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in that league and I wanted to do it on my own. Sure. And here I was failing. So I was, uh, instead of asking for help, talking about it and communicating it to people, I just, I just ran away and I ran to the one thing I know that made me feel like that CEO and entrepreneur that I wanted to feel like, and that was cocaine. And I was able to hide it because my wife at the time, we're obviously divorced now. She was so blackout drunk. She didn't even, she didn't even notice. Mm. She didn't notice. I had to go to the bathroom every 30 minutes. (laughs) Right. So that's how it went from recreational to, to heavy addiction. That was kind of the path there. Yeah. So, wow. That's, you know, I think that's really important for everyone to hear too, to how quick that this can happen. You know, I think if you don't know it or if you, you, you hear stories, oh, they, that can happen quick to you. That happened to you one shot, one shot. And, you know, I could, I could put myself in those shoes too and seeing some, you know, this celebrity type guy that everybody kind of respects. And, you know, he's kind of like the godfather almost in, in a way. Right. And then, you know, He's the man. He's the man. And you go, and you also bring up another thing not to back up. Like I hated cocaine, hated cocaine because I had a dad that did a lot of cocaine. And then fast forward some years, you know, you described once I did find cocaine, let me drink more. And that was, so I was probably one of those guys that was still up at four o'clock in the morning when you, when you woke up and um, you know, again, I'm one of those things too. Like I hated it. I had friends that were doing it and I was one of the last ones to actually find it. And then, but once I did, you know, I was off to the races there, kind of just like everything else. But just so I have a little idea, uh, timeline, how, how old are you when that happens, when you go to that party? And how old are you when you get married? Because I know you're, you have a couple of years that you that you got off it. Yeah. So that party, I was 20, mm-hmm. 20 years old, and I got married at 22. So yeah. you're married at 22, super driven guy from the get-go, everything you've been saying, you're very driven, you know, and then you start your construction company and, you know, you're even maybe more driven, you're driven by your family and you want to succeed and you want to succeed your way on your own. I totally admire that. How do yeah. you get from where you are to going every 30 minutes, your wife doesn't know, uh, to homeless? Well, after the business failures, when, you know, the, the banks started to call, and be like, you know, you're not paying your mortgage. You're not, you're, you're, you're behind. I, I distinctively remember a moment in time where I'm like, okay, I can either go get a job, admit failure to my business, but also be able to go get money for my family or, or for my wife. I'd had no kids with her, but, uh, and pay my mortgage and all that kind of stuff. Or I can go try one more crack at it and try to try to sell the job. And, uh, I went, I had a, I had a couple leads. I went to them leads. I, I didn't close on any of them. And then I just said, fuck it. I got some cocaine. Uh, I did a bunch of it the next morning. I woke up like, you know, coming down and my buddy was going to come visit from out of town from out of like all the way across from Canada. And she suggested like, why don't we go out and let's go get drunk with him. And I'm like, I ah, no, I don't want to, I, I can't drink with you. Cause she was really violent when she was drunk. She's like, you know, why are we together? I'm like, I don't know. And we broke up. <laughs> and so wow. she left. It was my condo. So, so she left. And from that point forward, I, I didn't have to hide anything anymore. 
I didn't even, I didn't love her anymore. I just said, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm just going to do cocaine every day and see where it goes. Like you don't really think rationally. And I just started doing it from, you know, every other day to, to every single day. And I got to a point where the bailiff was knocking on my door and I got kicked out of my house. They repossessed my truck and uh, I had nothing. I had my gym bag and my gym membership because I, I bought an entire year to get a discount. So all I had was the gym to shower at. Mm. And uh, I, yeah, lost my condo, lost everything. And I was just numb to it. I didn't care. Uh, oddly enough, I didn't blame anyone. Because I knew deep down it's 100% my fault. That's kind of one of my biggest superpowers is extreme ownership. That's why I'm successful now. But at the time, I'm just like, I don't care. I, I, made, I made the decision that I was going to kill myself. So I'm like, I'm just going to party until, until I feel like it. And uh, I, one of the days, I, I'm like, okay, hey, this is it. This is it. I, I'm spo- I was supposed to go to a, a family trip to Hawaii with my dad and my sister and my four stepbrothers and my stepmom and uh, their, their respective uh, wives as well, stepbrothers, wives. And um, I'm like, in my head, this is the addict brain. This is uh, makes no sense, but it makes sense to an addict. <laughs> I said, I'll kill myself while they're in Hawaii because then it'll be like, it'll be like, okay, well, you know, Anthony's dead, but I'm in paradise. <laughs> you know, like that's what I thought. I thought it was being uh, courteous. So I, I, I told my parents that I told my dad that I misplaced my passport. And, uh, to be honest with you, his reaction is one of the things that, that really, I think subconsciously saved me because he didn't get mad. He didn't, he wasn't, I was expecting like, what the fuck is wrong with you? All that kind of stuff. He was just like, he knew I was lying, but he's mm-hmm. like, he's like, okay. And he knew something was going on because I went from bodybuilder look two fifteen to 150 pounds in the blink of an eye. Like I was like, I could fall through the crack in a floor. Like I was nothing. And, uh, and he knew something was up. So yeah, I told him like, Hey, I can't find my passport, you know, got stolen or whatever. I, le- I think I told him I left a, my coat in a, in a restaurant and he just said, okay, you know, I'm sorry. Like this sucks, but you know, I really love you and too bad, you know, next time kind of thing. And I'm like, fuck, why couldn't you get mad at me? <laughs> Give me an edge. Right. Sure. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, so that night, um, I ignored that. And that night I, I got a bottle of bottle of whiskey and whatever money I had left over. I, I had enough for several, I think maybe half an ounce, like it was quite a bit. And, uh, I had some sleeping pills and I, I did pretty much all of it. And I, I vividly remember this kind of like, everything was like wavy. And I saw not like a, not a person, but just kind of like this warmth, this light in the corner of where I was. And it was just like talking to me in a way that wasn't audible, but it was saying to me, which is, it's hard to explain. It's, it's very, it's actually inconceivable is what it is, but it just said like, you're not, this isn't your time yet. You're, you're not meant to go like you're, you're this is way too early. So you're not, you're not going to die. You're not going to die today. And if you talk to any doctor, they're like, that guy was supposed to die. <laughs> that was, uh, that was quite a bit of, of substance in me. And I, I didn't die by the grace of, you know, God, wh- whoever, something, the source, some people will call it. I lived and I thought to myself, like, okay, I'm supposed to be, I'm here for something else. 
I'm, I'm here to, I don't know what it is yet, but I'm, I was not meant to die because I didn't do it for attention. Nobody knew that I was doing this. I did it to die and I didn't die. And, you know, just to give you some context, I did try to get a handgun. It's really hard to get a handgun here. Um, but I did try to get a gun from my friend who had one. He has a special license and everything, but he's very strict with it. He wouldn't even let me touch it. He just let me know that he had it kind of thing. And I tried to get it one day and he caught me and he knew what was going on. He's like, dude, you don't look so good, man. Like you should, you should go home. Like this is, this is not good. And, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, back to, to living, I, I, I lived and I, I said to myself, I, I don't know what I have to do. I don't know who I have to talk to and what needs to be done, but I'm going to straighten my shit out and I'm going to, I'm going to live for, for my family and I'm going to live for, um, an, an, an example to people. And that, that example to people, that one really stuck out to me because one, one moment in my life that has been uh, very much downloaded in my head was the Roger Bannister effect. He ran in a sub four and the year after he did that, there was like high school students doing that. Amazing. You know what I mean? So once you can see that it's possible, you'll do it. And I, I that always stuck with me and I, I knew it to be true. So I, I equated that into if I live through this addiction, this addiction that I said, there is absolutely no way that I can become sober. I thought it was, I always say that there's a better chance of a camel passing through the eye of a needle than me getting sober. <laughs> it Good was one. that much. Yeah, it was that much uh, cemented in me and, and I didn't die. And I'm like, let's, let's do it. So from there, I made the decision, like whatever I got to do, let's go, let's go become sober. And if you want to break that down a little bit, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, man. Um, I like you, if you knew me 17 plus years ago, I was, I was the last person that you would ever, ever imagine would get sober. I was the last guy, I would have been the last guy voted to, to do, to find sobriety. And you bring up also about living an example. Right. And I had a moment too. And it was, it was when I got sober and I was sitting, it wasn't, I've had lower lows than this, but I was sitting in my apartment and I am the first grandchild on my mom's side of the family. And there's like 21 younger cousins and they all look up to me. They all always looked up to me, you know, just because of my age, I'm like, my mom's one in 10. She has seven brothers, two sisters. And so like, I'm in the middle of, you know, seven awesome uncles. Then there's me. And then there's, at least this is how I see it. There's my younger cousins and they looked up to me. I lived in New York city and I work in New York city and work on wall street and all, wow, look at him type stuff. And I was just overcome. I say it was a Tuesday night. It was May 12th, 2006. And I was just overcome. Like, is this, is this what you want to do? Like, is this what you want them to see? Like, is this what you want them to, to look up to? And I had been battling in and out for a while and it was something different here. And I can't put my finger on exactly what happened. Uh, someone mentioned to me, maybe it was the divine. You know, I've said also, like, I don't know if I ever had real suicidal thoughts, but I there was a time where all I wanted to do was lay down in the street in the rain, have a bus run over me. And I shared that with someone. And they say, well, that's the actual definition. And if you said that to a doctor, they would admit you right, right on the spot. So take that for what you will. But you had that moment, man, this divine moment. And what really jumps out to me also, Anthony, is like like you said, you weren't you weren't seeking attention here, man. You were you were on your own and it seemed like you made the decision, but you weren't ready. You weren't ready. And you have that moment. And sometimes we can't actually put our finger on them, you know. And you certainly had one. I, I had definitely one, maybe more than one. 
you have that, right? And so tell us from there what you said, okay, this isn't my time. And you seems like you flip everything on its head and do a complete 180 from where you were the night before. Like, where do you go? Where do you go seek help? What do you do? Because you weren't seeking help at all. What do you do now? How do you get sober? So um, I happened to run into an old acquaintance of mine. I was completely out of money. I had no drugs in my system at the time because I was out of money. And I was on day four of no drugs. So, and only because I didn't have it. Like, like if it was there, I would have done it, right? Um, so I, I got my brain back a little bit. There was, I remember these points in times where I would run out of money, and I'm like, "What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you doing this?" And then the addict in you is like, "Fuck you! <laughs> Let's go get some drugs, <laughs> right?" So it was right time, right place. I ran into a, an old acquaintance of mine, and he looked at me, and this is one of those guys that really he was a socially awkward guy. Uh, back in the day in high school, he was kind of a, yeah, like a, like an outcast kind of guy, a weird, weird kind of dude. And uh, he would look up to me uh, a long time ago and he ran into me and he's like, Anthony. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, what the fuck happened to you? Real, like straight up. Mm. And, and I'm like, yeah, you know what, man? And I never told a soul about my addiction. I alienated myself from everyone. Like my parents didn't see me. No one knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was going on. Even my best friend, I would come up with excuses as to why I couldn't meet up with him. Because he's, he's never even done cocaine. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I, I took the wrong turn, man. I got addicted to cocaine and I lost my condo and I lost my truck. I lost my business. And I tried to go back and get a, a job at one point too. And I, I couldn't couldn't keep it because I never showed up on time and was, uh, was high all the time. And he's like, well, he's like, Hey, uh, he was a tile setter. And he goes, you're a carpenter. No one can take that away from you. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But no, not everyone's going to give me a job. And he's like, well, I happen to be doing a renovation for this person and I need a carpenter. He's like, I, I don't know how to do anything carpentry, but I know how to set tile. He's like, why don't we just finish this up together and we'll kind of go from there. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So uh, at the time he didn't know I was homeless. I get, had him drop me off at the, at the doors of my condo and I would walk into the vestibule, wait for him to leave. And then I would go out to the, there was a, it was overlooking this ravine and I would go sleep in the, in the ravine. So we, we were doing this project together and he dropped me off every day. And, and, uh, one of the days I came out of the ravine and he saw me and he's like, what do you, what were you, you like walking a dog or something like that? I was like, no, I was like, I live in there. He's like, what the heck, man? He's like, come live with me, me and my buddy. And I actually knew his buddy too. His name was, was Chris. Um, so I moved in with them and I, uh, I, we finished the project. It was just a home renovation, a small bathroom. And he, he looked at me and he's like, all right, we got, we got paid for the job. And he gave me half. He gave himself half. And I looked at the cash and it's funny. You look at cash in quantities of, of cocaine. At that time, at least I did, and I'm like, "Well, there's like two eight balls here," and and then I'm like, "Also death." So mm -hmm. I looked at him, and I said, and I was shaking, shaking, nervous, and and I was so angry at myself. And it's like you know when you get, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a lie, but you you you're almost like <gasps> like you're scared, and yeah, yeah. I had yeah. this envelope of cash, and I handed it to him. I'm like, I can't touch that. I can't, I can't touch that cash. I'm like, it's like pulling off the bandaid. I had to say it all really fast. I can't touch that cash because if I have that cash, I'm going to do cocaine. I'm going to die and I'm never going to get better. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a loser for the rest of my life where I'm going to die. And I'm going to die in like, you know, like in like a week. 
And he's like, holy, he didn't understand. He didn't know. He's like, yeah. he literally said, he's like, why don't you just not do it? <laughs> <laughs> <That's so easy. laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Cool. Cured. I'm cured. <laughs> oh, that's it. So I explained it to him and he, he took empathy right away. And he's like, okay, cool. And I said, the other thing is too, okay, I'll come live with you guys, but you, I can't have any cash. I can't have any cash. You can't have any debit cards. You can't have anything. I was like, I'm not, I was, I wasn't at the point where I was going to like, we call it hawking things, but I, like, I wasn't going to go to the pawn shop sure. and, and, you know, steal their stuff. That was, that just wasn't going to happen. But I'm like, I can't have, I can't leave the house for like a week besides work. You have to stay, keep an eye on me. And I'm like, I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to say, Oh, I need to go meet this person or I, I need to go, whatever. I'm going to buy drugs. I'm lying to you. I don't care what it is. If someone's going to come pick me up, it has to be my dad or my mom or my best friend, Eric. And, and that's it. Other than that, I'm getting drugs from these people. Wow. And he's like, Oh, holy shit. And then after I said that I was terrified because I was a little bit relieved, but I was terrified because I'm like, this is it. This is the moment you start to fix yourself. And this is the moment you say goodbye to cocaine and alcohol. And that was terrifying to me. I couldn't think of life without alcohol. It was so frightening. And at that moment, once I realized that I I said it, I verbalized it and it was going to happen. I slowly started to relax and be like, this is how I'm going to get better. And I took an approach of pure honesty always tell the truth, no matter what, no matter how ugly it is. And if I do lie, because I did, I would immediately be like, that's a lie. I, I would, I would just say it. I'd be like, even if it was dumb, I'd be like, you know, this, this black cup here was really good. I'm like, you know, it's a lie. I'm sorry. It's red. I don't know why I said black. I don't, you know, and through those, that habit of telling the truth and sabotaging my demons, I would mm-hmm. sabotage my demons by by saying, okay, we can go out to the bar. Uh, that's fine. But I can't have a debit card. I can't have a credit card. And basically, I can't leave your side because I will manipulate my way into getting free drugs if I have to. And uh, that's what we did. And it, it just it started to work. I, I did have just like you know many people. And I, I, and I say this as to, to make myself seem normal to other addicts too, is I had many multiple relapses multiple where, where it did squeak through the cracks and, and I did it there. The first time I was, I was alone. They thought they, you know, I was okay. Cause it was like a year in, they went to this music festival was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And I, I actually sold them on it because I'm like, I'm not going to go to the music festival. Cause I don't feel comfortable yet. Mm. And they're like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Meanwhile, I'm like, fuck yeah. I'm in, I'm, <laughs> I'm in home alone. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, I got the stuff and I did it and I, I came down, I, I, I felt those feelings and I'm like, I'm, I'm not doing it again. And I had a handful of, a handful of, uh, of hiccups and, and finally arrived to the part of, you know, I'm not doing this ever again and been clean ever since. That's amazing. I mean, so when was that? So again, timeline, what been clean ever since, what year are we talking? 2015. 2015. That's amazing. Unbelievable. So you, you quit. You finally quit. And I too, I, I went to a rehab in 2002 and my sobriety dates 2006. So I was in and out uh, of, for me, it was AA. It was in and out. I was sober for, I don't think I ever put 90 days together. I'd go back out and I, I heard it from, he's actually my sponsor. I love the guy. And he said it just, uh, just like off the cuff talking about when we're in our addiction. And he said, we were engaged in a battle 
every single day and we didn't even know it. And you, you kind of just spoke to that without even having to voice that, but you know, and I can, I can relate to the whole thing. Like you guys, they're going, going out to the music festival. Yeah, I'm good guys. And meanwhile, you're like, awesome. I'm alone. Here we go. And, uh, what you were given the gift, right? You were given that gift of surrender or whatever you want to call it in 2015. And you never turned back. When do you sort of come out publicly? And now obviously you can find yourself online. You are, you recover in public, uh, public yep. recovery, which is a new term for me, which I love. You know, when do you decide to do that? When do you decide to say, I'm going to share this with everyone? Uh, about five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, which is, yeah, there's no coincidence. It's the same age as my son. That Roger Bannister effect, man, for, for whatever reason, I heard that when I was a kid, it just stuck with me. And I thought to myself, all right, you know, cause some people would ask me, like some people that knew where I was, you know, homeless addict and, you know, fairly successful entrepreneur. Now they would ask like, you know, how did you do it? And then instead of like being like, okay, do you have four hours to, t- to talk? Um, I'm like, I, I got to show people that it, that it's possible. And that's actually, uh, I wish I, I wish I was in laundry damn where I, I have a sweater that says, that says it's possible. Um, I, you yeah. know what? I'll send you one. I'd love uh, after this, send me your details. I'll send you one. I'll mail it to you. Love one, buddy. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Appreciate it. Um, so I decided like, okay, I'm going to do this. Is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the Roger Bannister effect. And you know, if you recover loudly, people don't die in silence. And I subscribe to that. And I thought if I, if, if addict Anthony, right before he was going to kill himself, right before his attempt, if he could just see somebody just like him that got sober, he would be like, all right, if this guy could do it, I can do it too. You know? And the reason why I get into the nitty gritty about it also is and I show like, you know, I like oftentimes I go back to where I slept and I'll, I'll sit down there, right? Exactly where I, I slept and, and I'll do a video from there and I'll just be like, this is where I, I used to sleep. Cause I don't want people to think, you know, okay, Anthony did it. You know, there's the, there's the camps that are like, okay, Anthony did it. That means I could do it. And then there's also the camp of Anthony did it, but his situation isn't as bad as mine. Mm-hmm. And that could be true. There's, there's, an infinite amount of people that have it way worse than I had it. But to them, I, I would say like, this is exactly where I came from. So if you can resonate like, you know, Oh, Oh shit, he was homeless or like, Oh my God, he used to have to steal food from, from Safeway and Sobeys and the grocery stores and seven elevens and all that kind of stuff just to live like, okay, well he did have really bad. I, I He's not this guy that was like, you know, he was a weekend warrior and he got sober. He was a guy who lost everything, became homeless tried to kill himself, all that stuff. And if somebody, if just one person resonates with that and they decide to check into rehab, because if I can do it, they can do it. That's, that's what I'm here for. And that I feel is fulfilling that obligation and that duty of, of that indescribable, inconceivable light that I saw in the corner of that room saying like, it's not your time yet. And to me, that's like, I'm, I'm leaning into whatever spirit that was. I'm fulfilling my duty by doing it. I, I totally love that. I resonate with everything you just said. I think you said the saying is if you recover loudly, you don't have to die in silence. Do I have that correct? Correct. Yeah. You know, that's, and yeah, you're, you're not a weekend warrior story, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Everything I believe is relative. Your story is incredible because yeah, you were homeless and you had, you were down to nothing. You couldn't even hold a dollar bill. 
and you, you were aware of it. You had the self-awareness to hit. And I'm taken back by that as well, Anthony, you were, you were broke pretty much or totally broke and you got paid and you handed the money right back. Cause you were afraid to hold it. That's unbelievable. And yeah, your story is yeah. going to resonate with so many people. And to be honest with you, this is how this podcast started this recover out loud. Like I just, and like we said off the camera before we came on that, you know, I, I hear these amazing stories of people completely turning their life around in sobriety. And I just I've been overcome with more people need to hear them. And if there's one person today that, like you said, will will consider stop drinking, consider going to a rehab, we help one person today, then that's a that's a good fucking day. Pardon my language. It really is. And again, I say that my mantra that I said offline is to help one person today. And I say that with the hopes that this is going to help a whole lot more than one, one person today. And it's not me. It's this platform and it's you, it's your message and it's your story that is going to completely resonate and is going to help someone today. So just amazing, amazing story. And you bring me back to just to kind of, I guess, wrap things up, even though I could talk to you for, for certainly more, you said four hours before I could do that with you for sure. But yeah, I, agree. You know, I don't write down any kind of questions or anything, but I kind of just like to have a conversation. But one thing I've been doing lately and you just already, you already touched upon it is, and cause this happened to me, I was in a meeting and someone said like to talk in the third person, like, what do you do if, you know, 17 year old Gary's walking down the stairs right there and you bump into him, you're like, what are you going to say? So I'm, you kind of just touched upon that, but you walk in, you, you bump into Anthony when he's, when he's in that really bad spot, when he had bought the pills and told your dad, you're not going away and you had made a bad decision, but you get to bump into Anthony then. What's the message to him? What are you telling him? I'm going to tell him that you're worth it. Yeah. I'm going to say you're worth, your life is worth it. And your, your sobriety is possible. And the world is not a better place without you. And it's a, it's in fact, it's a worse place without you. And uh, I would just say you're in for, for some work, but you like to work and uh, just show up every day. Yeah, that's what I would say. Love it. There's some self-love in there too. I lo- absolutely love that message. Anthony, where can we find you? Where can we find you now? Where's the best place to find you? Uh, best place to find me is Instagram. So it's uh, Mr. Zorzetto, Z-O-R-Z-E-T-T-O. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I post pretty pretty much every day. Uh, I also do some sobriety coaching as well. Uh, so that is all through you know DM. I have 90-day programs. Uh, that comes with the nutritionist and fitness as well. So you get sober and you get jacked. So it's good. <laughs> Love it. I can use the jack portion for sure, but I don't know if I'm ready for it, but uh, <laughs> I can attest to it. Yes. Find them on Instagram. I was wondering if there's any other spots, but Instagram's your spot. DM him if you need anything, if you need help, if this resonates, I can attest again that he's an answer to you and he's an answer to you really quick. Uh, like I said, off camera, camera again, Anthony, like I am big into sort of, relationship building here and i'd love to have you back on and you and i are definitely going to stay in touch i am going to support you any way i possibly can i'm a fan of yours i'm more of a fan today i can't thank you enough for coming on i appreciate it very much oh man appreciate it and likewise i'll I'll share share where i can and i i know it's not easy starting a podcast and getting all the equipment and everything like that so i appreciate the effort and you're a great host this is awesome I appreciate it. Work in progress here, but I appreciate it. And those words uh, push me a little further. So thanks so much, bud. No problem. All right, man. All the best. You too.
Thank you for tuning in to another powerful episode of the Begin Again podcast. We sincerely appreciate your time and support. We hope that today's conversation has ignited a spark within you, affirming that recovery is not only attainable, but can also be a wellspring of strength and resilience. Our ultimate goal is to make a difference in someone's life every single day. By sharing these stories of redemption, we strive to empower you and inspire you to unlock your fullest potential, facilitate positive transformations, and contribute to creating a better future for yourself, for your loved ones, and the world at large. If you know someone who can benefit from listening to our show, please share it with them. And if you resonate with our mission and feel compelled to do so, we would greatly appreciate your support through a five-star review following us on Instagram, and subscribing to our YouTube channel, The Begin Again Podcast. The more positive reviews we receive and the wider our message spreads, the greater our collective ability to help others realize that change is possible in their own lives. Thank you once again for being a part of our community. May you be blessed on your own journey of personal growth and transformation.